Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 6. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're at the right podcast. Today I'm talking about As You Were, where Riley returns in search of a demon and forgets to tell Buffy he got married. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story coach, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Along with a breakdown of As You Were, I'll talk about how and why Buffy grows through seeing her life through Riley's eyes, whether Spike and Riley act in character, and whether Riley's wife is a real character, why Riley looks taller, literally and metaphorically, in this episode, and the heart of Buffy's inner struggle over being with Spike. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. As You Were aired the first time February 26, 2002 and was written and directed by Douglas Petrie. The opening conflict is emotional. At the Double Meat Palace, Buffy cleans the grill while her male co-worker does nothing but stand around pontificating about job security and the politics of Double Meat Palace versus other fast food places. He talks down to Buffy because she dropped out, as he put it, of college and when she doesn't know who Machiavelli is, which I kind of wonder about. We've seen Buffy, even in high school, know a lot of literary and historical references, but okay, maybe she missed that one. Buffy clarifies she's reapplying to college, and he tells her patronizingly, good luck with that, as he leaves for night classes. In the graveyard, Buffy sings Double Meat's Double Mix jingle, then comments aloud how she can't get it out of her head. A vampire attacks, she puts aside the bag of burgers before she fights him but the vampire stops mid-swing and says what's that smell geez slayer is that you buffy says i've been working and he responds where in a slaughterhouse buffy answers double meat palace and the vamp says "Ooh, know what let's just call it a night if it's all the same to you and you've been eating that stuff I'm not so sure I want to bite you. And Buffy says, you're dead. You smell like it. How do you get to say that I'm the one who's stinky? He says he'll catch her next time, but she throws a steak and dusts him. Then she sniffs her coat, grabs the double meat bag she set on the tombstone, and we go to credits. We return at three minutes, nine seconds. It's still nighttime, and Buffy trudges up the front walk, which is partially lit from the light on the house. Spike lurks behind a tree and he lures her away into the darkness. He wants to have sex. Buffy tells him no before he asks, but he persists. She says not here. Dawn's inside waiting for dinner, counting on Buffy, and she says, I'm not letting her down by letting you in. This suggests as other episodes have, that Buffy's reluctance about being with Spike, in large part, is feeling that others would be disappointed in her and because she's spending time with him when she ought to be with Dawn. At the end, though, we'll learn that that probably is not the biggest reason. 
And I think it's something that Buffy needed to learn as well. Spike pulls her toward the tree into the darkness with him. He says he wants her. She wants him. He can't go inside, so maybe the time is right for her to come outside. She sighs, drops the bag, and they start kissing. The way these two vampires respond so differently to her is a great external way to show Buffy's inner conflict. The first vampire didn't even want to be near enough to her to fight her despite knowing she's the slayer and attacking her, which echoes how Buffy feels about her job and her life and herself. Spike, in contrast, wants her. He desires her. He loves her. And he is not at all put off by her life as it is. This also goes to Buffy's motives for being with Spike, something that she needs to come to terms with. We're about four and a half minutes through the episode. Usually by here we see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling, which raises the question of what is the main plot here. There will be a demon fighting plot. There will be a plot about Riley coming back. But all of that starts much later. So I conclude, maybe correctly, maybe not, that the main plot is Buffy resolving her feelings about Spike and about her life. So the spark probably is her decision, however mixed and reluctant, to have sex with Spike out there in the dark. I'm not that attuned to visual storytelling. I don't tend to pick up on it consciously, but in this episode, I did. There are so many contrasts with dark and light. And now the kitchen, though it's nighttime, is pretty brightly lit when Buffy enters. Don opens the double meat bag. The burger is smashed. Buffy says it's not an original choice for dinner, but she did make it herself just for Don. Don is apologetic, but she just can't eat another double meat burger. This too could be the spark because Buffy tried to bring Don dinner. She did make it herself for Don, but this highlights how often all she's done is make a burger at work and come home and give it to Don as opposed to spending some quality time with Don. And it adds to the idea that while she can't change needing to work, she could change being with Spike. And that's emphasized when Willow walks in and asks Buffy if she had a rough night, which Dawn also asked her. Buffy's puzzled why they are both saying this, and Willow points out the grass-stained streaks on Buffy's coat. When they ask her if the vampires got rough, Buffy says he's not getting any gentler, and then clarifies that she meant they, vampires in general, not any one particular one. Dawn wants to go to the bronze with Willow. She is clearly so happy that Willow invited her, that she gets to spend time with all the friends, and they ask Buffy to go. Buffy declines. She seems tired, and she tells them to have a good time, and as they leave, she looks at the burger bag and says, somebody should. At the bar of the bronze, Anya and Xander stress over seating charts and table arrangements for the wedding and bicker over the chips they're eating. Dawn asks how the newlyweds are and they both snap at her. She wisely decides to join Willow instead, who asks Dawn how Mr. and Mrs. Highstrong are. 
And Willow goes on, you know, when I was little, I used to spend hours imagining what my wedding to Xander would be like. And now I look at them and I just think, me hee hee. Dawn comments how chipper Willow is and speculates it's about her and Tara being on speaking terms again. Willow agrees. She's not going to call Tara now. It's too soon. But if she did, Tara wouldn't hang up on her. And it is really nice to see Willow looking happy. We get a complete shift in the next scene because there is sad music sounds like maybe down on your luck country music playing as Buffy scrubs her coat and irons. The next morning she wakes up on the couch there's bright sunlight flooding in but Buffy's not happy because she is too late to bring the garbage bags out. The sound of the garbage trucks wakes her at nine minutes eight seconds she goes back inside the kitchen. Now it's very brightly lit with sunlight and dawn reminds her about trash day very helpful buffy experiences another disappointment a more serious one she opens a letter from the university that tells her she applied too late to re-enter as dawn leaves she says she'll see buffy tonight unless she's working so tomorrow's cool or whenever and she's pretty okay about this she doesn't seem angry at buffy anymore she seems more like she's reassuring buffy that it's okay and buffy turns to a big sink full of dishes i know that this letter is meant to foreclose other parts of buffy's life to emphasize how frustrated and stuck she feels at the same time they didn't turn buffy down because her record was bad she just applied too late she can apply again for the fall and yes when you're 21 Waiting until the fall can feel like forever. The The letter tells us it's uh, the deadline was January. Also, Buffy's depressed, so that can make everything feel overwhelming, can make you feel like you can't solve anything. And perhaps because Buffy was depressed, that's why she sent things in too late. So she may feel even more overwhelmed. But every time I watch the episode, I stumble over this a bit because it it feels contrived to me and too easy to see that the writers are trying to purposely build up how trapped Buffy feels and how bad things seem to set up when Riley returns. At work again, Buffy flips burgers while the same guy who seems to be some sort of supervisor pontificates some more. Then he asks if she heard back from college but doesn't respond when she says she did. He tells her to go handle the customers at the counter and at 10 minutes 35 seconds she approaches and Riley stands there in front of the register. He does not look like the Riley of old in his bland khakis or his camouflage outfits. Instead he is in all black very special ops and ninja like and we cut to a commercial. On return Riley apologizes for just dropping in but he needs Buffy for a mission. Buffy is so stunned that she mostly isn't responding to what he says though she does say things for instance uh at one point she says, 
My hat has a cow. She also asks if he was always this tall. And this is another visual part of storytelling that I noticed because the camera angle emphasizes the height difference between them in a way that I don't think was ever done before. In fact, my guess is they did their best to minimize that. Sarah Michelle Geller is, um, I can't remember her height, but it's a little bit short for a woman. And most of the time, my sense is the directors try to minimize that difference. But here, we really see how tall Riley is compared to Buffy. And I'm sure that's deliberate because it symbolizes how Buffy feels about Riley and about her own life. She feels small compared to him. He seems so amazing. He picks up on how stunned she is and apologizes for putting her on the spot, but he says he needs the best and specifically says, quote, I need you, Buffy, end quote. From Sarah Michelle Gellar's expression, we can see Buffy come back to herself. Her expression shifts. She's focused. She takes off her hat, sets it on the counter, and walks out with him as that annoying guy calls after her. I see that as the one-quarter twist, that first major plot turn. It came from outside the protagonist, which is Buffy. It came from Riley. It spins the story in a completely new direction, no question there, and it raises the stakes. There is some sort of dangerous mission here. This is one of the strongest one quarter turns that we have seen because it is such a shift. Also, Buffy makes a commitment here, something we often don't see until the middle of an episode, and it can have so much power there. And here, perhaps even more, she just walks out on that job knowing that she could lose it. Now, probably she won't. We saw Buffy do a more extreme thing and get her job back. We know Double Meat doesn't want to retrain people, and she can probably come up with some plausible excuse about why she left. Nonetheless, it's a commitment. She does not hesitate. She goes right out there with Riley. Outside, she laughs a little at all Riley's James Bond gadgets, which she says is so cute she forgot about that. He tells her about the Savolti demon he's tracking. The Savoltis are breeders. They're very fast, very aggressive. And if they get out of hand, they'll win a war with the humans. I love this because it very subtly foreshadows the other thing Riley's going to fail to tell Buffy, which is that he's not tracking the Savolti to kill it, but because they want to stop it from laying its eggs. That part about breeders, though, is woven in there with all this other information and all that's going on for Buffy emotionally, and I never noticed it until taking notes for the podcast. After he talks about how aggressive they are and how fast, Buffy says, so they're like really mean tribbles. Sorry, I've been dealing with these these geeks. It's it's a whole thing. This shows a difference here too, highlights it. Riley is chasing this dangerous demon that could take out the entire human race and she's battling three geeks from high school who right now are winning because they are hiding. The tribbles part does also go to the multiplying or breeding aspect, but it's played for humor, so I did not, as an audience member, pick up that that was important 
about the demon other than to show how dangerous it was. At 12 minutes, 49 seconds, the demon appears. Buffy and Riley fight. It's big. It's slimy. It's kind of goofy looking scene from today's perspective about special effects. And it gets away. They switch to Riley's giant black SUV after another skirmish. At the time, that added to Riley's special ops James Bond feel because you didn't see big black SUVs on every United States street like you do now. It was sort of this cool special ops kind of vehicle. Riley asks how Buffy's doing. She says it's a complicated question and Riley responds, I hear you. Got some big stories to tell you too if we get half a second. Buffy says, did you die? Riley responds, no. And Buffy says, I'm gonna win. He gives her a black suit to wear instead of her glowing orange uniform that'll draw too much attention. So we get a visual transformation of Buffy from her double meat striped orange uniform with the cow on the hat to Buffy in black looking more like her slayer self and also like Riley. The two of them joke about his black ops life. He tells her seriously that there aren't many people he'd ask to risk their life for him and it's really good to see her. He also says he loves her haircut all of which makes it stranger to me later that he did not mention being married. There was clearly time to have a conversation. So it had to be intentional on his part. Maybe not in a way to make things awkward later, maybe just because he wasn't quite sure how to raise it. But it does make me like Riley less in the episode, and I don't think that was the writer's intent. But while he's not exactly flirty with Buffy, all the admiration given their past together for him to not mention he got married feels really wrong. Buffy certainly could take this as an opportunity to reconnect with him. Two counterpoints to that though I'm not usually a Riley defender. For one, in his mind, Buffy left him, did not come after him. He doesn't know that she chased after the helicopter shouting his name. So it may not seem to him as if it would make much difference to tell Buffy. Also, no one is perfect and Riley believing that could be forgiven for maybe wanting Buffy to regret letting him go, wanting Buffy to have some moments where she is seeing him as a possible partner and he's not ready to burst that bubble. Now I'll flip to the other side and then I will let that go. But even from that perspective, you'd think that over time it might have occurred to Riley that it was unrealistic to expect Buffy to shift her view of herself and their relationship in about five seconds that he gave her to give him a reason to stay. Buffy had been pretty clueless. She had not been all in on the relationship. And this is the first time he straight out confronted her with that. And she was supposed to make up her mind and understand all these things and sort out her feelings immediately. There weren't a lot of other options for Riley at the time, but I would have thought that a year and we find out about four months of reflection 
might make him think that Buffy's inability to make a snap change in everything about their relationship might not reflect how she really felt. Personally, I think it did reflect how she really felt, but the show seems to want us to believe that's not so. And to see Riley is very well adjusted now, so I would have thought it would have occurred to him. At 15 minutes, 19 seconds, the scene switches to Anya and Xander in a traffic jam. They're going to the airport to pick up Xander's uncle, and Anya has a great line. She says, I think we died in this car on the way to the airport, and now we're stuck in hell. The two bicker and complain about Xander's family and Anya's friends and wonder why they ever thought it was a good idea to have all of them stay at Xander's and Anya's apartment before the wedding. Anya asks why Xander is defending his uncle. Xander says he hates his family and jokes that now he and Anya will create a new one and their kids will hate Xander and Anya and repeat the cycle of sleeping on couches and aggravating one another. As those of you who have listened to the podcast for some time know, I tend to go in a lot of directions creatively. I do this podcast, I write novels, I write books for writers, and I turn the Buffy and the Art of Story podcast into books. Season three, part one, is almost ready for publication so hopefully in the next episode I will be letting you know when and where you can get that. I also still practice law though on a project basis so sometimes I'm not doing anything with it sometimes it keeps me very busy and I teach legal writing and research. I'm telling you this to share something I've been struggling with which is that all of that creative work adds a lot of non-creative work, administrative work, business work. Much of it involves distributing all those different things on many different websites and platforms, some of which cause me to spend time swearing at my computer and getting really frustrated. In the last couple years, I've started to feel burnt out and it's seeping into the creative work itself, which is not good. My whole goal in shifting around my life and not spending 55 or 60 hours a week practicing law was to enjoy all those creative pursuits. I'm not leading up to changing anything about the podcast. In fact, I plan to continue it. I have some ideas about what I could do when I finish season seven, and I'll talk about that in the next break. I'd love to get your input, but it is causing me to think about how I could narrow and focus more, which is why I'm so excited that Patreon.com now offers an option to sell digital products, including to people who aren't patrons. As some of you know, about a year and a half ago, I created a course called How to Plot Your Novel from Idea to First Draft. It is a video course. You could take it at your own pace. When I first made it available, I put it on Teachable, a great platform, but it is one much more suited to people who are going to create a whole ecosystem of courses. Eventually, I realized that was one too many things, one too many directions, so I don't foresee creating a bunch of video courses and some changes on the platform mean that while people 
already enrolled still have access to the course, can keep going through it. I can't open it to new students, which left me with a conundrum. The course is really helpful to writers, people starting a novel, people revising a novel, and I want it to be available, yet I did not want to learn a whole new platform. I also wanted to be able to offer the option for people to take just whatever lectures or parts of the course they needed. You, for instance, might have tons of ideas for a novel or a screenplay. You might have picked one already, so you don't need the module on ideas. You might want to skip to the first draft part or you might not need any more on the major plot turns, but you might want to take the lecture on the hero's journey or on the obstacle-based approach to plotting. And now each lecture is available separately for $10 each. You don't need to be a patron. If you are a patron, there are special bonuses. All patrons can take that lecture on generating ideas for free. And then any patron at the $5 and up level can take any section of the course, can take the whole course as part of your Patreon subscription. You don't have to pay anything extra. If you are not a patron or aren't at that level, I probably shouldn't encourage this, but you could join for a month or two at $5 a month and take whatever you want to of the course and then stop your subscription. I don't have a problem with you doing that. I want the course to be available to whoever would find it helpful. One last note on that, if you are interested in the course, I would head over there and check it out now. I believe this is still a beta feature on Patreon, so I'm not sure if it's going to be available indefinitely. I'm recording this in August 2023. It's patreon.com slash L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y slash shop to get that course. At 16 minutes, 32 seconds, Riley and Buffy arrive at a bridge very high over a dam. Buffy is clearly admiring Riley as they sort out what to do. They rappel down on Riley's single zip line. He only has that one, so he holds Buffy in his arms. Below, they fight the Savolti demon. They get thrown back together against a wall. They're almost embracing, looking into each other's eyes, and behind them, a woman in similar black ops clothes repels down and says hey there what exactly are you doing with my husband and we go to a commercial riley introduces sam and buffy on return buffy stares at riley sam says pleasure and buffy says demon and the demon attacks again a fun funny exchange sam jumps into the fight as buffy recovers from the shock riley starts to fill her in he's been married about four months he meant to tell her demon fighting brought him and sam together riley dives into the fight as the demon starts to get the upper hand after a moment buffy does too she grabs the demon from behind and snaps its neck at 20 minutes 14 seconds Buffy says call this a wedding gift Sam and Riley though are not thrilled Sam correctly assumes that Mr. Can Do failed to fill the Slayer in on the objective that's when Buffy realizes that Sam is Riley's boss 
Having Sam B. Riley's supervisor or boss seems to be meant to show the audience and Buffy that their relationship did not fail because Riley couldn't deal with a woman stronger than him or a woman who was in charge. So the relationship failed entirely because of Buffy and Riley really had no problem with her being the slayer. As Sam slits open the demon, she explains that they were trying to track the demon, not kill it. And she discovers to her disappointment that the demon has already spawned. So we've got the payoff of those references to the demon being a breeder. This happens about 21 minutes, 10 seconds, and it strikes me as the midpoint reversal in a couple ways. It's a huge reversal in the emotional plot. Not only does Buffy learn that Riley is married when they had been mutually admiring each other and she was starting to feel a little more like herself, she also discovered that it seems it really was her fault that Riley left, or at least that the problem was not that Riley couldn't handle her being the slayer. And she now screwed up their entire mission, not her fault, but nonetheless, she's the one who snapped the demon's neck. Now the sense of reversal escalates because she's going to have to take Riley and Sam to her home, probably the last thing she wants to do. But Sam says, Buffy, I'd hate to impose further, but you got a safe house? And Buffy says, I have a house. I think it's safe. Sometimes you can't even leave, referring to older and far away. At the house, Buffy apologizes for the mess and picks up a few things lying around as they enter. This portrait of Riley feels like a bit of a retcon, particularly his relationship with Sam, because while I do think it was pretty clear the writers saw Riley as the one who got away, saw Riley, at least some of the writers, saw him as the good boyfriend that Uh, Buffy should have stayed with. They also wrote quite a bit suggesting that Riley did struggle with Buffy being the slayer, particularly once he wasn't in the initiative anymore, or maybe solely once he wasn't in the initiative anymore. And they never quite dealt with that identity issue for Riley. So stressing that Sam is his boss and he's fine with that leaves out that identity aspect. Perhaps I'm being unfair, though, because we do see, yes, Riley's happy now, but he is a soldier again, and he's definitely important in this world. He's doing the work he loves, which he'll say later, and he couldn't have that with Buffy. He couldn't be in the military and be with Buffy day to day. He couldn't demon hunt the same way he can with Sam, where he has access to all his gadgets and the support of a team while being with Buffy. So maybe that is the writer saying, yes, it had to be the whole package. It wasn't that Riley couldn't handle Buffy being stronger, but he couldn't handle not being able to contribute the same way. I'm really curious how you see that. If that is coming through, then Riley is consistent and it's not a retcon. Until I started 
talking about it here, though, I saw it more as, hey, look, Riley was great all along. He had no problem. It could have worked out terrific with him and Buffy. Dawn is standoffish with Riley because of the way he left. Xander, too, alludes to it, calling Riley a heartbreaker, sort of joking, but also a fun allusion to the way Xander seemed to have had a bit of a crush on Riley. Willow takes Buffy aside and offers to hate Sam for her. Buffy doesn't want to seem petty, but Willow says that's the beauty of it. As the best friend, she can hate Sam for Buffy. Riley and Sam explain about the demon and how it came to Sunnydale to lay a nest of offspring. Riley worries that Dawn shouldn't hear about the gory details, and Sam wins lots of points by calling Dawn a young woman who can handle it, obviously. In between, Xander asks about Riley's and Sam's wedding, and Sam wins points with him too, giving great advice. Buffy admits she killed the demon so she can't track it, and Sam is perfect here too. She tells Buffy it's good that she killed the demon before it killed them. Buffy looks sad as Riley and Sam join hands as they talk and tell everyone the eggs are being sold on the black market. There's a demonic dealer known as the doctor suspected of holding and brokering the eggs. I question whether Sam is meant to be a real three-dimensional character because she is so perfect. She is going to make a mistake with Willow, but she'll quickly correct that. And later she is just so humble with Buffy. And it doesn't feel put on. It feels like that's how she is so the ideal wife, so the ideal person trying to make everybody feel good, saying absolutely the right thing, that it's hard to see her as real. And it could be we are seeing her through Buffy's eyes. And just as Riley looks taller, he and Sam look like they have the perfect relationship. Sam suggests Willow use magic to help and raves about all she's heard about how powerful Willow is and Willow upset says she can't she's an addict and walks out. Riley suggests Sam and Buffy search for the nest and he'll look for the dealer go to Willie's and some crypts he knows a nice quick foreshadowing of him finding Buffy and Spike later something else I did not pick up on until taking notes for the podcast. At 25 minutes, 42 seconds, Sam finds Willow in the kitchen, apologizes, tells her about shamans she knew that got addicted to magic and didn't survive. And Sam says how much she admires Willow's strength and that Willow was able to cope with and beat the addiction. Willow says nothing but looks much less upset. The scene cuts to Buffy and Sam in the graveyard. Sam feels like she's meeting a legend patrolling with the real-life Slayer, and she's also awed by Buffy personally because of how many good things Riley said. Sam shows no jealousy, which does illustrate how secure she is in her relationship with Rye, as she calls him. And she is open enough to admit that she could tell how much Riley loved Buffy, though he didn't speak about it a lot. Buffy says Riley thinks she let him go, almost as if she's about to say that she didn't, but thinks the better of it. And Sam asks if she wishes she hadn't. Buffy says she wishes things were 
different, but not in a way that would cause problems for Sam or Riley. Sam tells her Riley finally got over her, but it took a year. She asks if Buffy's seeing anyone, and Buffy stammers a reply about taking time to herself. And it reminded me, even in regular circumstances, how much I hated that question when I wasn't seeing anyone because it just seemed to encompass so much of you need to explain yourself if you're not with someone. And that is for those of you who aren't there yet, one of the wonderful, wonderful things about getting into your late 40s and into your 50s is people kind of stop making such a big deal about that or about whether you have kids. It's it's a nice part of that phase of life. It's interesting that Sam makes everyone feel good about themselves except for Buffy. And it's not that she's doing anything different with Buffy. It's that nothing is going to make Buffy feel good right now. The more of a great person Sam seems to be, the worse Buffy feels about her life. At 28 minutes, 33 seconds, Buffy suggests they split up. Sam apologizes for slowing down the Slayer. Buffy insists it's not that. She just has an informant who might be twitchy if anyone else comes with her. She looks very sad when Sam tells her not to worry about her and Rye. They're good and goes off to find Riley. At 29 minutes, 3 seconds, Buffy storms into Spike's crypt. She wants information. She asks about the doctor, tells him what's going on, and Spike asks if the clock's ticking. Buffy says, whatever the doctor's doing, it'll be soon. And Spike says, soon, but not now. Buffy responds, tell me you love me. And Spike says, I love you. You know I do. And Buffy says, tell me you want me. He says, I always want you. In point of fact, and Buffy says, shut up. This leads to sex. And after Buffy and Spike lie naked under a blanket on a crypt, and I looked up types of crypts, and there is one that is called the side-by-side crypt, where two people can be buried, and it looks like that kind of crypt, because there's room for the two of them, but I don't think it is a bed. It's hard to see, because this is another scene that is very dark in terms of the lighting, and all the scenes with Spike are like that. At 30 minutes, 30 seconds, Riley storms in. Spike gloats about being with Buffy. He refers to her as his bint. He repeats what he said to Riley in the past about the girl needs a little monster in her man. But Riley says that's not why he's there. And he calls Spike doctor. And we cut to a commercial. On return from the commercial, Buffy, shocked, gets dressed. Riley demands to know where the eggs are after Spike comments on how the last time he saw Riley, Riley was getting his blood sucked. Spike denies everything about being the doctor. Riley punches Spike. And I have another characterization question, which is, is Spike in character? In season five, he always had respect for Buffy from the beginning, from the first episode in season two where he appeared. He respected Buffy and admired her. And in season five and six, it seems clear he loves Buffy. The show doesn't seem to dispute that, but Buffy questions whether he can really love her. But the show seems to tell us he does. So while I buy completely him being petty and sarcastic with 
Riley, that is very Spike, to say the monster in her man thing again. I don't quite buy calling Buffy a bint and the almost nasty way that he talks about her. I know this is trying to show how wonderful, fabulous Riley is, and he was the one who got away, and how sleazy and, and gross Spike is because he's a vampire, but it, it felt like twisting Spike to make it so obvious when it's already obvious. I don't think that's necessary. Having Spike turn out to be the doctor, having him deny it, having him be sarcastic with Riley, having Riley see Buffy with Spike when back in the Riley days that would have appalled her is enough. I don't think we needed it. Making Spike be mean about Buffy in that way feels off. I see all of this as the three-quarter turn. It grows out of the reversal at the midpoint. Buffy realizing that Riley is married. She lost her chance with him. Buffy making the mistake with the demon. And now Riley, who is so good at what he does and is on a mission, finds her with Spike. It also grows out of her commitment at that one quarter turn to go with Riley. Here is what I am thinking for once I finish season seven of Buffy. I like to look at the character arcs for different major and minor characters. A little bit like I did with the Buffy bonus episode where I looked at Buffy's arc from her perspective of coming back from the dead in the beginning of season six. I looked at from when she wakes up in her coffin through um, that episode and the end of the next one to see that story. But this would be on a bigger scale. For instance, there might be a willow season or more than one willow season. And I wouldn't recap every episode the way I do here, but I'd look at groups groupings of episodes for each podcast and see how does Willow grow and what happens. She might get more than one full season of the podcast because she is there throughout the series where a character like Faith might get one season, Giles might get one season or two seasons, and so forth, and the seasons would be different lengths. So that's my thought on that. I would love to hear if that sounds appealing, if there are particular characters you'd really like me to cover or not. I will include characters that I don't love as well. I love Faith, I love Buffy, I love Giles, but I would look at Xander's arc. I would look at the geeks arcs they might have a combined season so please tell me what you think you can find me on instagram or twitter which i guess is now x at lisa m lily you can comment on the buffy in the art of story facebook page on patreon or email me at buffystorypod at gmail.com also thank you to everyone who has rated or reviewed the podcast on your podcast apps it helps make it visible to other listeners who might want to hear more about buffy and about story so thank you very much for that
Buffy insists Spike can't be involved. He's not that organized. It's Spike. And at 32 minutes, 31 seconds, Riley says, right, deadly, immoral, opportunistic, or did you forget? And that might really be the turn because it reminds Buffy how she thought of Spike back a couple seasons ago. Riley heads to the underground level of the crypt to search. Buffy follows. And we have a new direction in the monster plot as Buffy and Riley deal with whether the eggs are there and we'll find out they are. And the emotional arc shifts significantly as well. Buffy and Riley see the eggs everywhere. Spike joins them, says he can explain, but Riley tells him he screwed up. He didn't refrigerate the eggs and he should have. Buffy punches Spike and tells him no more games. And now I find him to be very authentic and Spike-like because he gets angry and hurt and says, games that's a fine thing for her to say because all she does is play with him and she makes up the rules as she pleases changes them when she wants riley says can you shut him up and buffy responds not so far spike leaves as the eggs start hatching they are tons of bug-like little demons who are very fast and you can't possibly kill them one by one riley and buffy climb out Buffy grabs a grenade from Riley's belt, throws it down into the lower level, leaps on top of Riley to help protect him or shield him as it goes off. This is very symbolic, Buffy being the one to throw the grenade that destroys all of Spike's underground lair. It's a metaphor for ending her hidden life with Spike. She also shields Riley symbolically shielding that part of her life or perhaps reclaiming it. At 34 minutes 41 seconds, Anya and Xander are hiding in their bathroom while their friends and family members argue. It sounds like people are throwing things. Anya's upset right now that Xander is so enamored of Riley and Sam and their wedding. He reassures her he doesn't think that they have a better marriage than he and Anya will, though he does have a hard time picking picturing them hiding out in a bathroom. Buddy points out he has no idea what their wedding was like. And Anya says, so our wedding is not our marriage. And Xander says separate things. One fills me with dread akin to public speaking engagements. And Anya says, and that would be the wedding. Xander continues, which will be over soon. Anya says, but our marriage. And Xander says, that lasts forever. Anya says, that works out nicely then. They clearly both feel better. And there's a crash from the other room. At 38 minutes, 37 seconds, Buffy and Riley exit the magic box. Riley tells her his mission isn't over. He's authorized to take out the doctor. And does she want him to do that? And Buffy says, how can you ask me? I'm sleeping with him. I'm sleeping with Spike. Riley says, yeah, I had actually noticed that. This is a big moment for Buffy because it's the first time she says it with Tara, she says enough that Tara infers it and she confirms it later, but I'm pretty sure she never says those words and here she does. Buffy asks Riley if he waited to come see her for when his life was perfect and hers was awful. And I think we can all identify with that. 
or maybe it's just me, where you're at this terrible place in your life, everything seems to be going wrong, and maybe an ex turns up and it looks like their life is fabulous. Riley, though, says it's not easy for him either. He was terrified about seeing her again, and Buffy responds, well, I'm sure my incredible patheticness softened the blow for you. Riley says, I don't know what you're talking about. Buffy says, Riley, please don't patronize. And he cuts her off and says, hey, you want me to say that I liked seeing you in bed with that idiot or that blinding orange is your very best color or that that burger smell is appealing? And Buffy says, you smelled the smell? Riley says, Buffy, none of that means anything. It doesn't touch you. You are still the first woman I ever loved and the strongest woman I've ever known. And while I'm not advertising this to the missus, you are still quite the hottie. Another moment about Spike, I get Riley calling him that idiot, but it also erases all the growth Spike had and all the things he did that showed a real dedication to not just Buffy, but to trying to change. He stood up to glory, he protected Dawn, and he kept fighting with the Scoobies while Buffy was gone. And that's an ongoing tension. I've obviously mentioned it before, but I I think it shows the writer's struggle when you're trying to tell one story. And here we are trying to tell the story of Riley representing all the good things in Buffy's life, coming back and seeing all the things that she is so desperately unhappy about. So in the process, you can't also deal with all the growth Spike has had. And it makes sense. Riley does not know about most of that. It happened after he left. And it makes sense, I guess, that Buffy is not going to fill him in on that it would sound like rationalization and she's not herself in touch with that for her that is not enough to make what she's doing okay or to see spike in shades of gray Riley now tells Buffy that it's not about who's on top and he knows how lucky he is. He loves his work and his life. So I like that Riley acknowledges the work and that's what makes me think maybe the writers do see that it's that combination that Riley needs. After he says that about the wife, Buffy says, I know I kind of love her too. So again, perfect Sam. And Riley ends with, the wheel never stops turning, Buffy. You're up, you're down, doesn't change what you are, and you are a hell of a woman. So here I do like Riley. This is the perfect thing to say. That is how life is. There is up, there is down, there are those bad times. It doesn't mean that things will never change for Buffy. Buffy starts to tell Riley that that night, and we think she's going to tell him she didn't really leave him. But she shifts and says she never got the chance to tell him how sorry she was about what happened between them, and he says she never has to. I love that Buffy makes this choice. I see it as her knowing that it won't help anything for Riley to know that she did run after him. There's nothing to be gained for either of them by telling him that. I'm not sure where the climax is in this episode because our climax is our opposing forces having their final confrontation and resolving the conflict. For Buffy's emotional plot, 
which is more about her versus herself, you could see the climax as that moment when she took that grenade and threw it down and trashed the underground part of Spike's crypt. But I feel like that was in the heat of the moment and Buffy needs that last moment with Spike. She needs to make it clear to him too. Otherwise, we don't know for sure that Buffy won't slide back into that relationship and she doesn't know it. So I think the climax comes at the very end. The climax of the demon fighting plot already happened with overcoming those little baby demons which makes them sound cute, and they were not. And we have, in a way, falling action before the climax. Falling action from Buffy really has made a decision probably already about Spike, and the falling action is this conversation with Riley. And the subplots also are resolved here, which is what often happens in falling action because Sam and the others exit the shop. They're all still talking about the wedding. A helicopter appears overhead with a bright light. Dawn hugs Riley and Sam and Willow talk about having each other's email addresses to keep in touch. A zip line comes down and Riley and Sam together get on that zip line much as Buffy was on the one with Riley and they're taken up into the bright light from the helicopter on the ground. Everybody waves and Willow, though still waving and calling goodbye, leans over to Buffy and says, what a bitch. Now the last scene, which you could see as falling action if we feel Buffy has already faced those parts of herself, and this is just tying it up, but I do think she needed to do this to reach that resolution. So I see this as the climax in the Buffy versus Buffy plot where Spike is standing in for that part of Buffy. And of course, for him, this is for him the main plot and this is the climax. At 40 minutes, four seconds, during the day, Buffy appears at Spike's crypt, which is in shambles. She's dressed differently not in the orange like the double me, not black ops like Riley, but in a lavender top with ruffles. It's unlike anything that I can remember Buffy wearing, and it goes with that different visual look. This is a different Buffy. She tells him she's not mad at Spike about being the doctor and says, quote, that's just you, I should have remembered, end quote. He starts to interrupt, but Buffy says, it's over. And Spike, not surprisingly, responds, I've memorized this tune, love, think I have the sheet music, doesn't change what you want. And Buffy says, I know that, I do want you. Being with you makes things simpler for a little while. So she's acknowledging aloud what her motives are and that she does want Spike. And Spike says, I don't call five hours straight a little while. But Buffy says, I'm using you. I can't love you. I'm just being weak and selfish. And Spike says, really not complaining here. But Buffy says, and it's killing me. I have to be strong about this. I'm sorry, William. This brings it full circle from Fool for Love, that episode where Buffy went to Spike to find out about the other Slayers and in the process learned about Spike and Cecily, or at least the audience learned. Cecily told Spike he was beneath her and called him William. Buffy reiterated the words about Spike being beneath her in that episode at the end, but now she is showing him respect. 
and she's acknowledging the human part of him, the part of him that does love her. So she's not denying in the past she denied that she wanted him, even though clearly she did. And she denied that he could love her and that he did love her. She told him he couldn't love, but she is acknowledging that and walking away. She walks out of the crypt into the sunlight in contrast to the darkness with Spike and even to the darkness when she's hunting the demon with Riley. She is in the sunlight. For all that I've had a few issues with this episode, I do think it answers my question And I had forgotten this about why is Buffy so unhappy and so troubled by being with Spike? It's not what I had wondered about. It's not that she can't be in a relationship where she has sex without love. We don't get an answer to that. Maybe she can, maybe she can't, Um, or at least a relationship heading toward love. She didn't love Parker when she slept with him, but she saw it as the beginning of a romantic relationship, not just sex for fun. So we don't know if Buffy's okay with that, but here we learn that isn't the issue. It's, It's not that she has trouble with the idea that she just wants to have sex with Spike and doesn't love him. It's that she does believe Spike loves her. She does see some good and humanity in him, and she feels wrong about using him because she doesn't love him him. Now to accept this, we have to accept that Buffy doesn't and can't love Spike. She says she can't love him. And we don't know, is that because of how she personally feels about who he is? Is it because he's a vampire and doesn't have a soul? That seems to be the implication. But whatever the reason, she knows he loves her and she feels so wrong about it and so bad about it that it is killing her. And it's that. It's not that she can't tell people. She's not probably comfortable with what people would say, but she told Tara. Tara was very kind. Riley wasn't awful about it, as you would expect him to be. These things would lead Buffy to believe that it wouldn't be so awful if other people knew. And that, I think, also allows her to come to terms with that's not the issue. It's how she feels about it. That is the part I like best about this episode that Buffy discovers something about herself that has been driving so much of this season. That is it for this episode. Other than foreshadowing, which does include spoilers, I hope you'll stay around for that. But if you don't and you have found the way I break down a plot helpful, and want to try it for your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash worksheets. Thank you so much for listening. Come back in two weeks for the next episode, season six, episode 16, Hell's Bells, the Anya and Xander wedding episode. Though Xander eventually calms down in As You Were about the wedding, his offhanded joke about creating a new family and repeating the cycle returns in Hell's Bells. This is a huge fear Xander has. And while he says here that the wedding fills him with dread and implies that he 
doesn't feel that way about the marriage, what he actually says is the marriage is forever. And we'll find out that there is a ton of fear in Xander about that. He is afraid he'll repeat the cycle and become the equivalent of his father, that he'll be horrible to Anya. And we see the father being awful to his wife. And most of what we've seen about Xander's family life or heard about it, yes, there are the references to his parents. He's clearly not close with either of them. At one point, he calls and has to tell his mom who it is. But the more direct things we see in here are about his father. In the dream sequence in Restless, it's his father who is coming down the stairs and who rips his heart out. I really like the foreshadowing because it leads us to believe that the wedding will be perhaps challenging, but that that's the issue. That's what is freaking Xander out, not the idea of getting married. But when you look back, knowing that he's going to leave Anya at the altar, the seeds are here. Riley calling Buffy a hell of a woman, something else I never noticed before, but he says those words that Spike says at the end of the series. I think it's the second to last episode. He calls Buffy a hell of a woman. I never realized that Riley said this. Not sure if that is intentional, if there's supposed to be resonance there, if it's a way to show Spike's growth at the end, that he is more Riley-like in the way he talks to Buffy or talks about Buffy. He's not that same guy who calls her a bint. I'll talk about that when we get there. But I do like this idea that if we are going to accept that Spike uh, would be this way about Buffy, that shows more growth for him. As you were also foreshadows Willow and Tara reconnecting, and this is done so well. Willow's happiness that if she called, Tara wouldn't hang up with her on her combined with her maturity in knowing it's a little too soon for that does such a great job of laying the groundwork for the two of them getting together again finally buffy ending things with spike and walking into the sunlight foreshadows her being in at least a slightly better place in hell's bells spike also is more what i think of as in character in that episode he is petty he is jealous he doesn't want to accept that buffy really ended things he brings a vampire date to try to make her jealous But they have a very nice conversation about it, and Spike is pretty mature emotionally. Now, he will zigzag away from that again, but in that particular episode, they have some good moments that also tell us, from Buffy's perspective at least, she really meant it, and it really is over. That is it for the foreshadowing and spoilers and for the episode. Thank you again for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. I hope you will take advantage of the bonus content and the course sections if that interests you. Come back in two weeks for season six, episode 16, Hell's Bells, where Xander leaves Anya at the altar and Anya's wedding vows break my heart. 
You can find back episodes of the Buffy and the Art of Story podcast on YouTube or at lisalilly.com, where you can also find my mysteries and thrillers and the Buffy and the Art of Story books. If you'd like to connect or share your thoughts about Buffy, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lisa M. Lilly. That's L-I-S-A-M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y. Or email me at BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.